You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm here, this is Jordan Schrader hosting this week, and here with me are Andy Spey, Lynn Bonner um, from Washington, D.C., Brian Murphy, and in his last Domecast appearance, Craig Jarvis. We'll talk more about uh, Craig when we do our Headliner of the Week segment and what's next for him, but uh, uh, we're going to miss Craig very much. Um, We'll talk about that a little more. Um, But this was a huge week in North Carolina politics, one thing after another in the North Carolina Nine hearings uh, and a huge court ruling uh, at the very end of the week, capping the week um, with a, a giant Friday um, news dump on uh, uh, the constitutionality of, uh, of a couple of uh, North Carolina constitutional amendments. Um, we'll talk about all that and a few other odds and ends, but the big news was uh, the NC9 hearings and Brian Murphy, uh, you were there. Can you give us a little bit of a flavor uh, of what this was like to be at the, the North Carolina State Bar when uh, the State Board of Elections was having its hearing here on uh, election fraud in the Ninth District? Sure. I, I don't know what if I knew what to expect, but it, it was like a courtroom setting. I mean, there were lawyers up front. There was a witness stand. There was a court stenographer. Um, they all had to take the oath before they stepped up um, to the off, you know, to, to the witness stand. There were multiple layers of, of lawyers. Um, so there was the state board investigators who were asking questions. There was someone from the, McC- the McCready campaign. There was someone from the Harris campaign. They had, uh, you know, professional staff behind them. And then there were other lawyers representing some of the other races that had not been certified by the state board as well. And they would stand up occasionally and ask questions. Um, lots of witness rooms where witnesses were able to stay throughout the day so they didn't have to be in the, in the large hearing room where the, uh, the, the action was taking place. And then a lot of media, um, not, not you know national media from The Washington Post and The New York Times and The New Yorker, uh, obviously lots of local media. Um, from, from around the state, um, lots of television cameras uh, in standing outside waiting for their opportunity to talk to the people involved. Um, so it was a really kind of surreal event, like a, a true court uh, experience. Um, why was this a, a week of family drama? This was not what we were expecting going in, uh, but it played out like uh, some kind of a Greek tragedy or Shakespearean tragedy with... Uh, um, father against son, and uh, I guess stepdaughter against stepfather. So tell us a little bit about the family drama at the heart of the hearing. Yeah, I, the the first um, woman who testified uh, was Lisa Britt, who was a worker in this McCray Dallas operation down there in Bladen County that was uh, collecting mail-in absentee ballot requests, and then, if you believe the testimony, also collecting mail-in absentee ballots, which is against the law. Lisa Britt considers herself a stepdaughter of McRae Dallas. They're, her mother was married to McRae um, briefly in the early 1990s. Um, when she needs help, she often reaches out to McRae Dallas. He, she lived at his house during a lot of this time period with her two young children. Um, so that was the first witness, the stepdaughter testifying against you know the man she considers her stepfather. And then on on Wednesday afternoon, we got the bombshell, and that is that John Harris, the oldest son of Mark and Beth Harris, was going to testify ostensibly against his father. I mean, 
contradicting the story that Mark Harris had told that no one had given him any red flags about McCray Dallas. John Harris, who's an assistant U.S. district attorney in, in Raleigh, um, came off as probably the most credible witness of the entire uh, episode um, when it, when his testimony was all done and it was very damning for his father and his father's case. Uh, you know, when it was all done, he said, I, I don't have an axe to grind against my family. There's no family vendetta. I just felt that, you know, that I needed to come up here and, and tell the truth. Um, and I think his testimony changed the entire episode. Before that, I think, uh, you know, most observers, including myself, thought this was going to go down along party lines. Um, the state board had yet to really prove that enough votes had been messed with to change the outcome, um, even though there was a definite feeling that, that many votes were tainted. Um, but after John Harris's testimony, it became a little clearer that, that Mark Harris was going to have to explain an awful lot of stuff when he took the stand. And uh, then we saw on Thursday, um, almost you know about two hours into his testimony, Mark Harris was already... Um, I don't want to say perjuring himself, uh, but had to come back to the stand and say that testimony he had given earlier was incorrect. Uh, he was facing days and days of cross-examination um, that would have almost assuredly tripped him up in some ways. And that's when the hearing basically ended very abruptly. One of the remarkable things about this is, you know, in a trial, you, you don't have these kind of surprise um, witnesses and things that the defense doesn't know about. There was no defense in this case, defense prosecution. But, um, y you know, you, apparently Mark Harris didn't find out until that his son was going to testify until very shortly before he was on the stand there testifying, right? Um, we were told after John Harris testified on Wednesday that Mark Harris did not know he was going to testify at all. It later came out in testimony that Mark Harris found out the night before at about 11 p.m., in a conversation he had with his other son, um, his other son saying, I, I don't want you to be surprised, but, but John Harris is John is going to testify. Mark Harris had actually seen his son around the courthouse or around the North Carolina uh, state bar and, and was wondering kind of what he was doing there. Um, didn't realize that he was going to be testifying. Yeah. And, and even the McCready campaign lawyers, Mark Elias, who's a, a well-known prominent DC attorney did not know that he was going to testify. And, and it seems clear that the Harris campaign didn't know he was going to testify since it was only about 15 minutes before John Harris came up to testify that they were able to produce emails from John Harris to Mark Harris uh, that were at the heart of John Harris's testimony. Um, John Harris had actually turned those documents over in January, and they were at the heart of why Mark Harris probably wasn't being completely truthful when he talked about not having any red flags about McCray Dallas. Um, you know, it, there are so many unanswered questions, and that was one of the things that, by Mark Harris cutting off his testimony, calling for a new election, uh, the board quickly wrapped up. It, it's um, That was the purpose of the hearing, right, to decide whether or not to call a new election when you have both the Republican and the Democrat saying, we need a new election. The board has no reason to go further into its investigation. But because that was cut short, there were so many questions that we didn't get answered. Um, I think atop of that list is, was the Harris campaign fully complying with the subpoenas and the record request for documents that the state board had issued? There was lots of drama on Thursday morning about documents still being uncovered. Uh, there was the talk about the John Harris emails, which weren't turned over in time. Um, 
in the end, it, it appeared that the Harris campaign um, and its attorneys were, were either not producing documents or slow walking documents, all of which was building to a case of, you know, what did Mark Harris know and, and kind of when did he know it? So one of the big strains of testimony was just that was what did Mark Harris know? And, and it turns out you know, he had quite a few things that uh, would be fairly described as as red flags about the operative in Bladen County who um, was working on his behalf there. Um, and, but the other you know, big unanswered question we had going in was just sort of what exactly was done. We had we had heard from a number of people that they had um, harvested ballots. They had picked up ballots, which is illegal. Um, filled out ballots that uh, um, uh, people had already voted and turned them in. Um, but Lisa Britt's testimony uh, and, and maybe others went further than that. Lisa Britt saying that she, uh, on behalf of McCray Dallas and ultimately on behalf of um, the Republican clients, were, she was filling in uh, votes for candidates. So they were not only picking them up, but they were uh, falsifying ballots. Yeah, she said mostly that was for down ballot races, um, that most of the voters had filled out who they wanted for the, the congressional race, for the sheriff's race, and one other race that she couldn't could not remember. She was filling out mostly down ballot um, races, but again, it gets to that overall taint of the election. If you have people on the stand will you know admitting that they were filling out other people's ballots after that person thought they had turned their ballot in. Um, you know, it, it's certainly illegal to collect someone's ballot and, and put that in the mail. Um, but that's not even what they were doing. They were picking up those ballots, returning them to McCray Dallas, either his house or his office. And then we don't really know what happened to those ballots. Republicans were arguing up until the very end that, that nobody was <laughs> saying, I cast a vote and it didn't get counted. Um, it, we never really got evidence about that. But, but we do know that they were picking up those ballots. Some were unsealed. They were filling in. Um, some of the races, in some cases, um, in some cases, they returned those ballots. So McCray Dallas held on to them long enough for someone to complain about it and then that ballot to be returned to the voter. And this is where it got into a little bit of uh, was there some Republican turf and some Democratic turf between uh, McCray Dallas's operation and, and what the Bladen County Improvement Association was doing um, that some of that stuff never really got resolved. In the end, I think it was the testimony of, of Andy Yates, the campaign consultant, who said, I had zero oversight over what McCray Dallas was doing. He simply gave us a number uh, for the number of ballots that he collected, and we turned over a check. Uh, we had no inv invoices, no expense reports, none of that. So it showed an overall lack of, of oversight over this operation. And then John Harris's testimony that he had raised numerous red flags with his father, not only in 2016, but also in April of, of 2017, right as uh, Mark Harris decided to go with McCray Dallas. It was clear that John Harris was trying to get him not to do that. Um, and then, you know, it never got to it, but, but certainly the defense was going to show multiple um, videotaped interviews with Mark Harris where he denied and ever getting any kind of um, red flags raised about McCray Dallas. Um, we never really got to see where all that was going to lead. I, I asked uh, the chairman of the board if he thought that Mark Harris knew what McCray Dallas was doing. Um, John Harris said he didn't think so. He thought that, that McCray Dallas had lied to his father. Um, Mark Harris's defense team sort of said the same thing, that he was unaware of what was actually happening. I asked the chairman of the board if he thought that Mark Harris was aware of the fraud happening. 
And he said that they never had to answer that question. Um, and so they're not going to answer that question. And, and, and that, I think, is, is at the heart of Mark Harris's political future. Do you believe that he was aware of the election fraud taking place? Um, it, it's going to be up to voters in the ninth and, and whatever race that Mark Harris decides to run in, if he ever decides to run for office again, to make that determination. And so we don't know yet, uh, as of this taping anyway, of uh, whether Mark Harris is going to run again. Um, but we um, are starting to see a few, a few candidates uh, hint that they'll run. Um, we do have, you know, that's, that's kind of the end of it as far as the State Board of Elections is concerned. Okay, new election ordered. Um, but are there going to be some criminal charges? The case will certainly be referred um, to who that is uncertain. It, it could be referred to the federal district attorney, you know, to federal authorities, federal prosecutors out of the Eastern District. It could be referred to federal prosecutors maybe in the Middle District of North Carolina. John Harris, of course, works for the Eastern District. Now he works in civil cases. He probably wouldn't be involved in this, but they may decide to, to move it to a different district just given the, the conflict of interest appearance, the appearance of conflict of interest. It could go to, to the Wake County district attorney. Uh, the district attorney in Bladen County has a, a recused himself from the, the matter because McCray Dallas had worked for one of his opponents at one time. Um, we may see um, a grand jury seated and, and maybe indictments come in the 2016 general election and possibly the 2018 primary election, um, according to Lauren Freeman, the, the Wake County District Attorney. And eventually, whether this week or next week or, or in the near future, I, I expect this case uh, to be referred to one of those prosecutors for, for more charges. Uh, McCray Dallas, who refused to testify unless he was granted immunity, would seem to be at the center of that case. Um, do they try to, to flip McCray Dallas to testify against some of the people who hired him, including Mark Harris? Um, that, that's probably above, uh, above my level of expertise at the moment, but that's, that's the kind of investigation I think we're looking, we're looking at uh, going forward. Anything else uh, strike you from the hearing, Brian, or, or does anybody else... Uh, have any questions about uh, what was going down uh, this week? The one thing I would say is um, how how quickly it all turned. Um, up until up until Mark Harris took the stand, I mean, uh, the North Carolina Republican Party Executive Director Dallas Woodhouse was in the room, was constantly rebutting um, testimony that was given or pointing out that that. You know, maybe there were factual inaccuracies in, in the reading of a statute here or in the reading of a law there. Um, he, he was very much defending Mark Harris until the last moment when Mark Harris had to come out to the stand and say, I had given some erroneous testimony and I'm not feeling well. And I, the testimony I've heard over the last few days means that I think there should be a new election. Um, I just thought it was fascinating that, that the supporters of Mark Harris stuck with him up until that very, the very end and, and that last moment. There was also the interesting question about whether people had seen uh, early vote returns before Election Day. Um, and there was that interesting text from, I believe it was from Mrs. Harris to John, uh, saying, we have this many votes. Um, I found that um, just as a little glimpse into how um, the Bladen Board of Elections was running and people were looking at totals before 
they were supposed to and, you know, leaving doors unlocked and keys in locks was really um, kind of interesting. I was wondering whether there might be something more for the State Board of Elections to do um, in securing voting in Bladen County. Stella Anderson, who's a board member, um, brought that up at, at the end of the hearing about the State Board having more oversight over the Bladen County Board of Elections. Um, the Department of Homeland Security had issued a report basically exposing many of these things, the, the keys hanging in, in public places where others had access to them, um, raised a lot of these ballot security and, and election security concerns. The, the Bladen County commissioners decided not to fund any, any election security upgrades. Um, and now it's obviously become clear that there were problems in Bladen County. It'll be interesting to see if the board takes over for for the next election or the next two elections or what exactly changes down there in Bladen County. Just one point, the, the, the email that came out, the text message that came out from Beth Harris to John Harris, I believe was about primary results um, in Bladen County. Uh, and so we're not even talking about 2018 general election. We're talking about the primary. There was already hints that somebody was feeding uh, voting totals to McRae Dallas, and then he was relaying those back to the Harris campaign. And he did not get the number exactly right. I believe the number in the email said 988. The actual number was 899, but you can see how how that number would be suspicious. Uh, it's a it's a it's a, a firm number. It's not a round number. And um, you know, as it gets as it gets told from one person to the next to the next, you can see how a couple of numbers could get flipped, how 988 could become 899, or vice versa. I think that raised a lot of suspicions with the board of elections, um, the state board of elections, about wait a second, did he really have access to to these kind of vote totals? And we explored that in a fact check after the uh, um, the new election was called. By we, I mean uh, Politifact. Because that was the main, uh, Brian, you touched on it, one of the main things that people were left wondering is, you know, how far did the early voting results and absentee ballot, um, uh, early, early votes, how, how far did they leak? And you mentioned the keys hanging on the doors. Um, the word leak was used in a lot of headlines. It was thrown around by Dan McCready's campaign and the North Carolina Democratic Party. Um, but what I thought was interesting was that the State Board of Elections uh, said that they could never confirm that those early voting totals that were printed early in the race in November uh, left the building, so to speak. Um, it was confirmed that the tape with the, the results was printed early, but no one could find um, evidence that it was leaked to uh, McCray Dallas or uh, others on the campaign. Um, but they did, like you said, they pointed to those, that text between Beth Harris and John Harris and uh, quoting McRae from the primary as evidence that he probably, he probably did have them um, in November. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. I wanted to hear, I was left wondering what other evidence the board had. Um, I, wanted to hear, I wanted to hear what else they had uh, that, that, um, that those early vote totals got out, and it makes us it leaves me wondering, will they take over the elections board down in Bladen County? Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see a timeline for not only the election, but who's going to control it. The person who probably would have been able to shed the most light on whether those results had leaked, 
is Cynthia Shaw. She was the executive director of the Bladen County Board of Elections. She was on the witness list for both the McCready campaign and, and the Harris campaign, but, but it never got to either of those sides calling witnesses. In the state board's um, you know, presentation, they showed that multiple people in the room had seen uh, the election results for at least sheriff, um, which was a contested race between Jim McVicker and Hakeem Brown. Um, but they had never been able to tie that directly to those results getting out of the room. Cynthia Shaw, though, test, was testified to by, by someone in the room as having called that person into their office and said, how did you let these results get out? Um, and, and it was unclear the timing, whether that was about an hour after the tape was run or a day after that tape was run was unclear. But at least one person outside of that room had heard that those results were leaked. So you're right. There were, there were so many unanswered questions. If this was a court case, I think we might have gotten some or more of those answers. But because this was a hearing to determine whether or not a new election was needed, as soon as they determined a new election was needed, all the proceedings stopped. And the state board did enter all of its evidence in, into the record, as did uh, the McCready campaign. Um, but it wasn't publicly presented. So do you have access to the rest of those documents, the things that weren't presented because the, um, because the hearing was cut short? I believe that will be public information, but I'm not 100% sure. The board was very um, – the board presented a lot of its evidence early uh, and put it on, on a portal, and it was available to the public and to the media. However, they didn't put up everything. Obviously, the, the, the emails from John Harris to Mark Harris were not available. The witness list, uh, the fact that they were going to call John Harris was not publicly available or publicly known. So I don't know exactly what evidence they decided could be made available to the public and what evidence they decided to, to hold back. Um, but that will be a question moving forward. If there's any way to get the, the full breadth of the evidence that um, the state board was able to uncover during this this three-month investigation? Well, after uh, a long week at the uh, State Board of Elections, after um, Brian and our, our colleagues, uh, Eli Portillo and Jim Morrill of the Charlotte Observer, um, were uh, all over the, the Ninth District hearings all week long. Uh, we kind of thought we were done. And then uh, Friday, uh, the late uh, Friday news dump, as is tradition now, of a court ruling coming out late on a Friday. Uh, that uh, the latest bombshell was that um, the two constitutional amendments that had been challenged in court were ruled unconstitutional. Uh, now that will be uh, uh, appealed. Um, but Lynn, tell us a little bit about the judge's uh, rationale for striking down these two uh, constitutional amendments. Well, um, this lawsuit was brought by the NAACP and uh, I believe some environmental groups who have been um, arguing for a long time that the voter ID and um, income tax limit constitutional amendments were not properly on the ballot because um, they were passed narrowly in the legislature and um, some of the people who were elected in the legislature were elected from districts that were uh, proclaimed unconstitutional by the federal courts. So for a long time, uh, NAACP and its uh, leader, uh, Reverend, Reverend T. Anthony Spearman, has been, have been calling the, uh, the legislature the usurper legislature, saying that a portion of uh, the legislators are 
are not properly elected because they are from they were elected from unconstitutional districts. So the rationale is that because um, the uh, some of the uh, legislators are um, uh, elected from gerrymandered districts that are unconstitutional, and because the vote to get the um, the amendments on the ballot was so narrow that these were not properly presented to uh, the voters. So here we stand with um, two of these, two of the four that were approved in question, and two um, two of the vital ones, especially in this election year when uh, voter ID is, is going to kick in. So um, as you said, Republicans have vowed to appeal, so um, we'll see where this goes. But it certainly was um, it certainly was a huge surprise, um, especially something um, that had gone against some of the other arguments or and some of the other decisions in court uh, with this this win for um, NAACP. And our uh, colleague Will Dorn is uh, looking into some of the, the implications of this, too, for a possible follow-up story. And does it mean that every law the legislature passed is, uh, is invalid? How, what, what exactly is the scope of this? Um, and so um, we'll be trying to, to learn more and get that to you on newsobserver.com. Um, and one other thing uh, before we break for headliner of the week, um, Craig, you wrote about the uh, uh, hurricane, the latest on Hurricane Florence relief. Um, this has been something you've been following as the legislature first allocated a bunch of money uh, for hurricane relief, um, and now uh, local government uh, officials are kind of picking up the uh, the the line and saying, um, you know, we we need help. Um, so what's the latest? Well, it's funny how news kind of submerges and reemerges, and uh, the hurricanes, of course, were a huge deal at one point last year. Now, lately, all we've been talking about is District 9 congressional race. But uh, sort of with that in mind, an alliance of a couple dozen um, counties and cities and towns and uh, other groups in the eastern part of the state that got really hammered in the last set of hurricanes have formed an alliance. And the basic idea is not not to just sit back and let the bureaucrats take their course. They're, they're, they they uh, traveled to Raleigh one day last week, had a news conference, and then met with individual lawmakers to talk about, you know, we, setting some priorities, kind of scooting things along, needing more money um, uh, just to, to repair what's been damaged, but also to look ahead and figure out how we can stop, you know, some of the tremendous damage that, that we saw last time, like Wilmington being... Uh, an island for something like four days because nobody could get in out of out of because uh, forty was underwater and something nobody ever envisioned. But uh, so they're they're they need to they know they need to come up with specific plans to uh, you know to build those roads safer to also build houses and other buildings uh, in a way that they're not as risk of, of collapse as uh, as they were this time. Um, they're they're saying there's a lot more attention needs to be given to streams and tributary and river management. Uh, because this was basically a flooding event, and that uh, uh, I think that one of those obscure uh, positions, the Soil and Water Commissioner, is suddenly very important in uh, in in this because uh, if if these streams and stream beds are uh, you know congested, then that's not going to help. And they also want to do um, you know get a lot of money. They didn't say what, other than a significant amount of money to go to affordable housing. Because that's still a big, uh, a big uh, issue there. So, uh, like I said, it was mainly just to raise awareness. Don't forget us. Here's what we think you need to do. 
Um, the legislature, of course, has already chipped in money. I think it, I think the total is $850 million uh, in a couple of bills, but they're going to be revisiting that this year uh, at some point, I think. So. And, uh, of course, we're also, um, a lot of this aid comes from the federal level, and I think we really don't know yet um, what, if any, impact um, the president's emergency declaration is going to have on, uh, on relief. Right. We don't know where that money is going to come from no. uh, if, it, if the courts even allow it to go forward to, uh, to build a wall on the southern border. Um, but So it's, it would be a lot of hypotheticals, but it seems like um, money that uh, could could be uh, helping military bases after uh, storms and after uh, after the hurricanes here um, could be potentially could be yeah there's some discussion over where that money comes from I guess like you said uh, but there are uh, there is a spreadsheet out there of some I think some several hundred military construction projects that were uh, at least you know theoretically could be uh, find themselves not having enough money but that's that's still a long way off by the way, just to bring this full circle, this is not completely unconnected to uh, NC9 because uh, NC9, of course, was hit by a couple catastrophes this year, which is uh, in, this, in the past year, which was uh, Florence and then uh, the uh, Bladen County also, of course, um, the site of all this uh, alleged election fraud. But Brian had an interesting detail in his story that the Harris campaign actually um, paid to have their campaign yard signs picked up before uh, Hurricane Florence and put back out after. And um, the person they paid to do that work was McRae Dallas. So um, that's it, I think, for now. And we'll take a quick break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to say this in closing. I love my dad. I love my mom. Okay. I certainly have no vendetta against them. Uh, no family scores to settle. Okay. I think that they made mistakes in this process, and they certainly did things differently than I would have done them. But in thinking about all of this and engaging in this process and watching it all unfold, I've thought a lot more probably about my own little ones than my parents and the world that we're building for them. And I will be frank, Mr. Chairman, watching all this process unfold, we have got to come up with a way to transcend our partisan politics and the exploitation of processes like this for political gain, that goes for both parties, Democrats and Republicans, and Libertarians. And frankly, when I'm coming out of this process, I'm just left thinking that we can all do a lot better than this. That's all I have, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? We are back with more Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week. And as I alluded to earlier, um, our beloved colleague Craig Jarvis is retiring. And uh, he, I, w- I wondered if he maybe would have some thoughts about his time covering uh, everything under the sun at the NO, um, including politics, but also um, the courts, 
uh, features. What, what all have you done, Craig? I, I just wondered if you could kind of reflect on some of your favorite uh, memories uh, from, from your time at the NNO. I used to tell people if it wasn't in print then I didn't have anything else to say about it. But uh, in this case, I'll make an exception to my own rule. I think my, in, in broad strokes, I covered uh, the crime, I covered the arts, and I covered politics. And crime was pretty much the easiest of the group, although the most depressing. But it just lent itself to really human stories about, about people. Uh, the arts is populated by the biggest egos anywhere, even in politics. <laughs> it's astounding. But... Uh, I, but I did enjoy it. Politics was probably the hardest of all, though. I mean, it's just challenging, especially nowadays. There's so much coming at you from all directions, particularly covering the legislature. You're, you, know, you have to understand a bill on deadline and quickly get it out there and shift gears all the time. And people think that uh, some people think that we're biased, but I, I spent all my energy trying to f make sure it was right to figure out that I got things accurate uh, than, uh, <clears throat> than I did with some agenda. You know, at some point you might research a story enough that you can say somebody's right or wrong. But generally speaking, it's just a scramble. But uh, certainly a very important one. And um, when I'm <clears throat> glad that the News Observer is going to be continuing uh, this my political coverage with a full slate of reporters. You know, um, I would just say I like, you know, I feel a lot of the, uh, the, the angry people who call about our stories. But... You know, I invariably hear just uh, only good things about Craig and about his reporting. People know that he's fair, um, that he's uh, trying to um, capture people's sentiments fairly, um, that he's going to dig deep but also um, be accurate in what he's reporting. And, and I've just been impressed over the last few years with, um, um, with how, you know, you can really put things in perspective and, and give people the full sweep of what's going on, put things in context. Um, you know, some of the highlights, I think, have been some of the, the profiles you've written of candidates, the things that you've done to sort of put the campaigns in uh, perspective and um, kind of explain to people, um, you know, what's happening in their name, in their government. Um, and so I, I haven't had the chance to see uh, you in some of these other uh, uh, areas of coverage you've had. But um, since you were in the staircase... Um, I guess I can go watch that and, uh, yeah, that, and get a glimpse of you in action. That uh, accounts a for a big beat. chunk of my life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning the Durham murder of, uh, of uh, Michael Peterson's wife. So, um, all right. Well, uh, unless anybody else wants to say anything, we'll, uh, we'll do headliner of the week here. Uh, Craig's final headliner with us. And uh, Brian Murphy, let's, let's start with you. Uh, who's your headliner of the week? I'll pick an obvious candidate, and that's John Harris, a 29-year-old uh, U.S. assistant district attorney um, who may have a bright political future ahead of him someday. Um, he testified against his father, uh, Mark Harris, in the NCO9 hearing, suggesting that uh, he had warned his father uh, several times about the possibility of working with McCray Dallas and the fact that Dallas might be doing something illegal, and I think... Uh, not many people came out of that hearing looking better than they started the hearing, but John Harris certainly was one. All right. John Harris in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, wouldn't have known who you're talking about uh, a week ago at this time. Uh, in fact, I think we were talking about uh, him early on and saying, I think it's Josh, Josh Harris. Is that? So um, we, uh, that's certainly a name that's, uh, um, taken much greater precedence uh, the last few days. Um, 
Lynn Bonner, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick Craig Jarvis, our fantastic colleague. Um, for a lot of reasons, you said, you know, this, I guess, this is, the, is the section of uh, I'm not crying, you're crying. But, <laughs> but, um, but Craig has been a calming influence uh, for years at the General Assembly, um, covering some of the hot button issues over there. Craig, you've been fantastic. Same here, Lynn. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to work with you. And uh, my headliner of the week is all my McClatchy colleagues, especially the I'm not crying. I'm really, I've got allergies. <laughs> I've got, as all, uh, all my colleagues, especially here at this table and on the political desk, you, you, you make it the reality of, uh, it, of, of this taking, uh, taking an early retirement is uh, leaving everybody behind. And it's really a lot harder even than I thought it would be. So you guys are doing great work and just keep it up. Good to hear. I've, I've seen the glee on your face uh, <laughs> as you prepare to leave. So <laughs> this is the other side of it. Yeah. Uh, Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? I don't want to go now. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to be <laughs> Craig. Gone well, I think, it, when, you know, Craig announced uh, over the weekend to the public that he was leaving. And um, for those who of our listeners who aren't on Twitter, all you have to do is go look at um, some of the responses to see how much... Uh, it was embarrassing. It was not embarrassing. <laughs> uh, how much uh, admiration and respect that um, Craig has gotten and earned um, from across the aisle. And I think um, that's just a testament to how fair he is. Um, not to say he's not tough. I've definitely heard him be tough. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not picking anyone besides Craig. <laughs> All right. Well, neither am I. Um, and uh, any other week, John Harris, I think, would have taken this. We could find another excuse to make him the, the headliner later. Um, but um, I was looking at uh, um, Domecast's past uh, at, at Craig's record. Um, thanks to our friend Brian Anderson, we have a record of at least the early Domecasts. And uh, I was looking at, at uh, who you'd pick for headliner. Some of the highlights, Jeb Bush. Uh, a name we've we've probably forgotten. Uh, Ike Tillis. Ike. Oh, the, was that a dog? Was that the dog? Was I that, think so. I, the, I think so. Yeah. There was no detail. On Ike that. Tillis. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure that's the dog. Ike Tillis. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Craig has won headliner um, many many times, uh, and uh, so this time he doesn't win because uh, Lynn is our winner, I guess, for picking first picking Craig as our headliner and this is probably the first time that Craig has been the headliner so it is um, so um, we're gonna miss you uh, and I really appreciate everything you've done done here and, uh, and I think with that uh, we will sign off for Domecast for Craig Jarvis and also for Brian Murphy Lynn Bonner and Andy Spay I'm Jordan Schrader uh, catch us next week You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.